I bought a copy of the Papa Lip CD, High Time Now, when it was first released in 1998. One of the tracks on it, I'll Be Free, struck me as capturing the optimistic enthusiasm of youth. But what happens to the hopes and dreams of musicians just starting out? I'm Neil Ashworth, and this is I'll Be Free, a podcast about musicians finding a way to make a living, the lessons they've learned, and how they survived, or plan to survive, a life in music. Probably concentrate on the music that you love, that you would want to play, and if other people like it and you end up being successful with it, that's fantastic, but don't necessarily count on that being the case. Sean Fearon was the drummer in Peking Man, a band that had a number one single and a top ten album in New Zealand in the 1980s. Let's find out how that happened and what happened afterwards. What got you interested in drums? Well, the very beginning, I suppose, was a family trip over to Australia. We were living in Wellington. I was about 10 years old, and we went to visit my aunt and uncle in Sydney, um, and their son, Ian, my cousin, had a drum kit and had just started taking drum lessons. He was about 14 or 15 at the time, something like that. So we were all very interested in the drum kit, and me and my brother and my sister all had a bit of a bash at it. They were absolutely useless, of course, but lo and behold, I found I could tap out something on it and sort of found it was quite fun. So that's really what sparked my interest. But it wasn't until many years later, I didn't do any sort of music, uh, musical instruments at school or anything. It was after I'd left school, I was about 18, that I, I was working at a computer job and the supervisor at the job I was at, he had a drum kit for sale. When was this? What About what year were we talking about? Oh, that would have been around about 1978, something like that. So on a whim, I bought this drum kit and then decided, well, I might uh, try and get some lessons. So I was in a local music shop down Queen Street in Auckland and was asking the bloke behind the desk if he knew of any drumming teachers. Turns out he was a drummer, and his teacher was actually in the shop at the same time. So quite fortuitously, I met up with him, Bruce Gaylor. He taught many household names, including Carl Palmer out of Emerson, Lake and Palmer. That was sort of the, the major start of things, I suppose, because he was an excellent teacher, American guy. had grown up during the, the jazz era. Um, his dad was a big-time publisher in New York, so he knew all sorts of people, had, had met um, all sorts of jazz greats over the time and just knew everything about drumming. So, so what was he doing in Auckland? He um, had been travelling the world and, and had moved from America to um, Britain and lived there for several years. Um, and uh, he was living there for a little bit and he came up with an idea for holding symbols on the top of a stand. He was good mates with the Zildjian family. One of those said, we're really interested in that. What do you want for it? And he said, I want a house. So the bloke bought him a house. Um, <laughs> For the for the patent on the idea, 
a good teacher. Yes, he was a great find. I was very, very lucky. Uh, obviously, you're not going to join a high school band because you've left high school. Well, only just left high school. So, in fact, it was kind of a high school band. The, some of the guys that, that I'd been at school with just that very next year, they decided that they wanted to form a band and asked me to come along. So we all kind of learned together. Um, we had some success in Auckland, won a battle of the bands one year. We called it Frank Xerox and the Duplicators and um, played a lot of sort of rocky stuff. That sort of got things going. That lasted for several years to about the early 80s, something like that. Uh, decided I would start giving lessons as well, which turned out to be a great way to improve. <laughs> Nothing like trying to teach somebody else. And so you're gigging around Auckland, you get to the early 80s, then what happens? Yeah, well, Frank Xerox and the Duplicators had split up due to some police action in, in some ways. <laughs> One bloke went to prison. So <laughs> they were sort of falling apart anyway. And uh, so I was just teaching. I got a call from somebody asking if any of my pupils would be interested in joining a band, coming along and having a play. And I said, I don't know, but I'll come along. So I, I did that. And that turned out to be a bunch of guys who were about two, three years younger than me. To be honest, probably much better musicians than the Frank Xerox guys and playing some really interesting stuff. And uh, so I joined up with them and we eventually started uh, writing some songs and we called ourselves, well, at first we called ourselves See Around Corners and uh, then we decided to change that down to Corners. started putting a whole bunch of graffiti around Auckland <laughs> based around the corner's name. Is this like dead of the night, spray can? Spray canning the, the word corners round a corner of a brick building, that, that sort of idea. And then going out promoting ourselves for various gigs with that name. Bit of an unfortunate thing, our bass player decided to spray paint the sports club room that we had been using for our rehearsals and they knew that that was the name of our band and he goes and spray paints corners all over their sports club so that put the kibosh on um, rehearsing and doing some gigs for about three months <laughs> that's one of the things with bands is you, you make a lot of noise and often that noise is not at all appreciated if you're not yet very good <laughs> and you, you know so what were the venues you'd be playing at? Uh, a couple of pubs, but there were coffee house type clubs. Um, but there were some other bigger nightclubs, a place called Main Street. There was a pub called The Glue Pot, which isn't there anymore, but several pubs around inner Auckland. And then out west and down south of Auckland. This one's called Afraid of the Dark. There were some big pubs, big sort of rooms um, that would put 
bands on. Um, sometimes we'd play those. There was sort of a, a certain set of bands that would play those ones, and we would play some of the others. It, it sort of um, depended what you're doing. They were they were disco dominated, really. But no, there were quite a lot of venues that that you could go to, and there, were, there was a variety from small ones to medium size. I suppose back in those days, and it might still be the same. There wasn't a lot of 10,000 seaters or 12,000 seaters, you, the next sort of step up would be 60,000 at, at Western Springs Stadium or something like that. Yeah, so, but that was okay for the New Zealand market because there's not that many people, so <laughs> it didn't matter too much. <laughs> But eventually we, we started to, to get somewhere with that, then decided that Corners wasn't a great name and decided to change it and we dicked around for another three months or so trying to figure out another name but eventually I think it was the singer Pat Ehrlich who came up with Peking Man and it seemed quite fitting because that was a gigantic fraud so <laughs> we quite liked the name so Peking Man is what it became. Okay, so you've mentioned the name Pat Ehrlich here, so yes. the original lineup, who was that? That was uh, myself, Pat Ehrlich, singing Tim, Tim somebody, <laughs> I've forgotten Tim's surname, um, Calder, that's it, Tim Calder, how silly of me. Um, he was playing bass and Neville Hall playing the saxophone, and there's also a guitarist who was really the founder of the band, Mike Roundtree, um, and he was a, a, still is a fantastic guitarist, wrote a lot of really good songs. But something changed in, in Mike, I don't know what it was, but we just started not getting along and, and he wanted to do different things. So he left the band and we got a new guitarist, Perry Marshall, and we went with that lineup for quite a long time. You're saying we went with that lineup, but that means someone's going out there and looking for work, someone's booking gigs and you're doing the same circuit? Yes, exactly. At first that was myself and we also uh, sort of teamed up with some booking agents and whatnot, so we managed to get a tour of the North Island of New Zealand and so did that. And then it was after that we sort of decided that we needed to expand the lineup a bit. And also, my brother had come back from um, living over in Britain. He was uh, actually has a law degree, but wasn't inclined to become a lawyer. He was quite keen, and so we decided to make him the manager. And so he could go out and do all that legwork of looking for gigs and all of that. It sort of adds another mouth to feed, doesn't it? It, it does. But, but the it expectation does. is adding that mouth to feed will generate more food generate more food exactly exactly and we also added two more mouths to feed both tim and pat were great friends with a bloke called jay folks who became jay fabula is his uh, stage name i mean he um, was a percussionist so we brought him into the lineup and we wanted to explain expand the vocal range of of what we were doing um, pat's sister margaret was very keen as well and Turned out she could sing like a bird, so we brought Margaret in, into the lineup, and that that was a turning point. The very first gig we did with Margaret, 
as soon as we came on the stage, they were all eyes on the stage and all looking straight at us and everybody up and dancing right from the word go. It was all the same music, but, uh, you know, just with... And so was this like her appearance or her stage presence? Her stage or? presence, she was, she was very good at grabbing the audience and, you know, getting them to pay attention. But just I think the vocals as well just sort of added that dimension to it that, that made a bit of a difference. So that, that had a real sort of impact. So you weren't just another bunch of blokes plugging into amps on the stage exactly. and, and banging out some rocky tunes. Exactly, yeah, yes. something happening. Around about the same time, we were also starting to um, do a lot more with sets and um, we, we built a big banner that we put up the back. Um, we experimented with things like, then we had 150 candles all around the stage and we lit the whole thing with candles rather than stage lights and did that a couple of times. Whose job was that? Oh, then we all we all pitched in. <laughs> but yeah, that was just to kind of try and give us a bit of a, a quirky name, I suppose. I mean, split ends were big at the time. We managed to do a couple of support gigs with split ends, which which always helped. Did some support gigs with another big band of the time, Hello Sailor. So those sorts of gigs were were great in promoting uh, the name, and that got us noticed by a record company. Well, a couple of record companies. And we eventually signed with CBS, who later became Sony. Company, But that must have felt pretty damn good. Oh, it did. It did, yes. Because that was the pinnacle in those days, wasn't it? You yeah. want to get signed. You want to get signed. That was good. They put some promotional money into it and they you know, recorded the album. Uh, Murray Tom was the guy who was running it when I was there. He eventually, he left CBS, made a truckload of money in New Zealand by selling personalised number plates. And, uh, well, that's a bit of a jump. <laughs> had an absolute fortune from that. The, the first uh, single was Lift Your Head Up that's High. That's right, Lift yeah. Your Head Up High. That did it okay. It did number 21 in the I charts, think, uh, I Yeah, that's right. That sounds about right. Yes, yeah, it went about number 21. And then, once again, that must mean that some sort of validation. Oh, we've yes. been signed. We've got a top 20-ish hit. Yes, that's yeah, it. We're on our way. The key thing there being that it means that you're getting radio airplay. And achieving that radio airplay is, is the big thing, especially getting that foot in the door. Once you've done one song and they've liked it and they've played it, and uh, even if you can, you get on high rotation, that's even better. Then the next song that comes out, they're, they're more prepared to listen to it. Cause, and this was a time in New Zealand where it was hard for local bands to get airplay. It was. That, that's right. There wasn't any sort of quota. I, I think around about that time, they may have actually introduced a, a quota on New Zealand content for certain radio stations. I don't even know if it was all radio stations. And some of the video shows, what was it called, Drop a Culture, you were really pleased with yourself if you managed to get that sort of radio airplay. You've rattled off a whole lot of names that did really well in Australia. Yes. You know, like Split Ends, um, Hello Sailor. Dave Dobbin was another one who was around at the time, yeah. And it wasn't just that the market in Australia was bigger, it was that in Australia they were prepared to play the music on the radio. Yes, that's right. And uh, that's exactly it. Uh, not so much in New Zealand. 
Of course, the audiences are that much bigger. New Zealand always has been a fairly small market, so that's another thing that actually makes it quite difficult. At the time, the population was about 3 million people, and at the time, around about 3 million people would ride the tubes in London every morning. You know, it was that sort of scale. Okay, so lift your head up high does really well. Yep. You must be feeling on a roll because then comes along room that echoes. That's right, yes. quickly it went to number one but it went fairly quickly and stayed there for several weeks the whole album is lifted by that and i think that hit number six on the album charts yeah that sort of was the song i suppose that that kind of made us if you like it brings a string of awards you get best group 1986 best album 1986 best single 1986 and a string of technical production and yes. uh, engineering awards go along with yes. it. So you're, yes. you're at the top, you're peaked. That's right, yes. And that was right about when it all kind of fell apart. <laughs> Our dear friends at CBS, when we first met them, they were very keen to know who's the songwriter. And Neville Hall, he wrote Room That Echoes and, and a couple of the others, but, but we'd sort of try and emphasise that we all do it together, but, but OK, here's the, the main songwriters. And who's the main singer, you know? And so it was at the time it was Margaret and Pat. And it was more probably more 60-40. Pat would take most of the, the songs and Margaret would do the rest and sort of doing backup vocals on, on the others. But she would rather have had a more of the lion's share and certainly the record company recognised Margaret as being a big draw card. So they went and said to Margaret, uh, listen, love, if you ditch the boys, we'll take you over to Australia and set you up good. I mean, that sentence could be lifted from the life of many, many bands, couldn't it? And you were all about to come over, peaking man, to Australia. To, to Australia. Well, that was the plan for most of us, and that was certainly the longer to, or medium to, to longer-term aim. We, we knew we needed to, to move out of New Zealand. But part of the splitting up, I suppose, also was that that wasn't, not everybody in the band was really that keen on doing that. The problem is that even at that level of success, uh, we, we couldn't all live off it. It wasn't a decent enough living. We all had to have some sort of way of supplementing our income. I was still doing the odd bit of teaching, had previously been doing the odd sort of bit of computer contracting um, and that sort of thing. The resistance was, don't want to move to Australia unless everything's paid for. Don't, don't want to go to Australia and have to get a day job and then be trying to make it as a band in Australia. You know, we're, we're at the top here. We should, everything should be paid for. And there's uh, also must be developing a, a split in income within the band, the songwriters. Would... At, at that point, not so much. No? It, but there was, there was a difference in income, definitely. Um, Margaret was getting advertising gigs. She was getting, you know, getting an ad and being paid $10,000 for that while we, we're doing gigs and each getting paid 50 bucks per gig, you know, that, that sort of idea. If you get the odd big show, like a support act for a big concert, like uh, Eurythmics, and um, that was probably the biggest audience. It was at a, at a festival, but we were on just before the Eurythmics, and that was about 40,000 people. It was an amazing experience. 
But so those sorts of gigs, yes, there's royalties for live performance of these things. And there was a certain percentage of the gate. I think it might have been something like half a percent or 1% of the gate would, would have to be distributed out amongst the songwriters of people who were performing there. So that could be fairly lucrative for the songwriters, but that really wasn't such a big factor. But yes, what you say is actually still true. There was a big discrepancy in income, and that did cause some resentment because, like I say, Margaret was getting 10,000 bucks a gig and doing several of these you know, in, in a month. So, so she was sort of living the high life off that. So you're about to go to Australia. What happens? Well, there, as I say, there was resistance amongst some of the guys, so they didn't want to go to Australia. Margaret had been given the offer by CBS to say, uh, look, just ditch the boys and we'll take you to Australia, set you up with all the best musicians and whatnot, and set you up with a bunch of uh, international songwriters who have all had big hits in the past, um, and they'll write a song for you and we'll make you a star. And she, I think quite fair enough, said, yeah, sure, why not? <laughs> you know, and, and away she went. Peking man, no woman. Peking man, no woman, exactly. Yeah, we, we spent a little while looking for a replacement that didn't really work out. We ended up just doing gigs as a, as a covers band. A couple of us then moved to London. And we formed a band over in, in London, which we called Still Raining. What made you decide to go to London? Well, personally, I was looking to break into the, the US music scene. The, I don't know if it still is, but certainly in those days, the capital of music in, in around the world is Los Angeles. Um, that's where everything sort of happens. There's a school of music in Los Angeles called the Grove School of Music, who are very sort of well-known amongst the drumming community as having produced some of the great sort of drummers who are doing really well in the US and all of this. But I didn't have enough money. To, I didn't have the initial sort of fees. So I went to London to do computer contracting to earn enough money uh, in order to go and apply for the Grove School of Music over in Los Angeles. So you arrive in London, you got your drum kit with you? Got, took the drum kit with me, yep. Guitarist Perry Marshall and, and uh, then some other guys from other bands that we knew were all sort of there at the same time. So we formed this new band called Still Raining. We signed up with a booking agent over in London and started doing gigs around town. That eventually sort of led to getting stuck in a grind, I suppose you might say. Because there must be a difference between gigging in Auckland and gigging in London. Yes, there absolutely. A key difference is that it's a much more established scene in London. So when you go to a venue there amongst the, the size of venues that we were sort of playing, it would generally be a small pub. The room would maybe hold a couple of hundred, maybe up to 500 people, but they'd have bands all the time. And a lot of them very good, some of them not so good, but you were just one amongst many bands. You didn't always get a Friday or a Saturday night gig. You, you would often be doing sort of Tuesday to Thursday um, night gigs, that sort of idea. Um, so it's a bit more, I suppose you might say, a bit more mundane. And there's so many bands, of course, so it, you can get really good and um, get a little bit of a name in London and you're not sticking out at all. <laughs> you know, there's, there's plenty of other bands who are sticking out a lot more. So the, the competition is, is a lot more sort of fierce in that sense. We were just gigging to get a bit of extra money, really. We, we weren't really really pursuing record companies. And, and when is this again? Around about 88, 89 through to about 1990, I suppose. That was combined with doing the computer contracting work and finding I could earn so much more money. This is a deadly thing for musicians, finding I could earn so much more money at that. The, I think I've often thought the most successful musicians are the ones who just had no other choice. 
they, 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 it was, you know, you had to, you just had to do it. And, and, and in those days, you know, an IT computer job was a, quite an interesting one. It wasn't dull. No, it wasn't dull. It was, you know, a fun job and well paid. Going back to the Grove School of Music, it, that I just sort of got to a point where I thought, oh, gee, is it really that important to me to get all my savings together in order to move to Los Angeles to try and make it through this school and get known by... Los Angeles record companies and recording studios, which was kind of the aim, but thought in the end, oh, I don't know if I've got the energy. <laughs> if London, the competition was much fiercer, oh. and LA it would have stepped up and all that. Absolutely, absolutely. And uh, I've heard that this is on a completely different scale, but I remember reading an interview with Steely Dan. They came from New York to Los Angeles. They didn't have a drummer, so they would use various studio drummers for their albums. And the guys would turn up with a truck and a crew and the, you know, they're, they're, they're often they'd have two trucks because the guy was doing two two gigs that day. So you know, so the other truck would take another drum kit to a different studio, and this their, their crew would set up, you know, the, the whole drum kit and all of this. So they're at that sort of level. They can afford to have trucks and a crew and a gigantic drum kit. The drummer. <laughs> yeah, the drummer. Just you know, it's it is an insane sort of difference and. Yeah, so yeah, we're, we're, we're grinding away doing um, uh, gigs in, in London. Uh, that had some really good moments, it had some not so good moments. Um, a lot of the time they were Irish pubs, they would be more fun, you know, the crowds were into it, but we'd often be faced with, do you play the national anthem? And we didn't know which national anthem they were actually talking about. <laughs> there were several choices and we didn't always know which Irish pub we were in. But there was one in Kilburn called um, Biddy Mulligan's where you knew quite sure because they would pass around a collection tray for the IRA. So when they started asking for the, the national anthem, we were completely flummoxed. What is the national anthem of Ireland, of Southern Ireland? You know, like, uh, I've, I've still got no idea <laughs> what, that, what that would be. So we'd play another thin Lizzy song because they always love Thin Lizzy. <laughs> and once again, I was the the chump who decided to chase the money and, and chase the gigs and all of that, which wasn't always a fun job. But there was one gig where um, we'd played the whole thing and the manager of the pub, he's out in the open pub um, with lots of people around and said, I oh, would just need to sort out the money. And he says, oh, yeah, yeah, here you go. And hands this wad of notes to me and shoves it in my hand right, at, right there in the pub. So, oh, okay, so I go out the back and count it. It's about half what it's meant to be. So I go back into the pub. He's in his office now. So I bash on the door of the office and eventually he opens the door and starts rabbiting on about how he didn't like the music and oh, I'm not going to fucking pay you that. I'm not paying you this. And no, no, no. And that was that, was that you know, not, not a lot we could do. He wasn't going to sort of beat the guy up or anything, you know, so in an Irish pub, yeah, you know, so those sorts of incidents. We keep going on, yeah, which then just led me to the, the final straw. It was a Tuesday night, you know, we all had jobs the next morning. Band was meant to go on at eight o'clock and so we arrived there about six and asked if we can just go up into the room and set our gear up oh no no look we're not um decided we're not going to put the band on till nine so if you can just hold off for a bit yeah okay that's fine so we wait for an hour or two whatever it was and and say okay can we get up there oh oh no no look actually so we're putting it back uh we think we'll put the band on about 11 and then it became oh we're going to put the band on at, at midnight and then it was oh sorry guys no look we've decided we're not going to put the band on at all and we this is about 11 o'clock at night something like that so we said, okay, whatever, we'll just take the money then and, and we'll be on our way. Oh, no, 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 you're not getting any money. You didn't even play anything. No, no, no. And that was when I said to the other guys, look, I'm sick of this. <laughs> just, I've had enough. I'm going to concentrate on computers. <laughs> so that was it. That's the full circle. Yeah. 
um, meeting Carol and and deciding that I wanted to be with Carol and and you know we wanted to um, to settle down to some extent. That that was certainly a big factor in deciding that I didn't. I wasn't going to pursue the Grove School of Music in Los Angeles. I couldn't imagine trying to drag Carol over there with me and, and pay for <laughs> somehow, or more likely, as is not an uncommon story, her paying for me all the way down the line and doesn't always work out well, you know. So I, I just didn't, I didn't want to sort of have go down that line. I, I, I guess I've always had a feeling that to, to be a really successful musician, because you're going to have to go here, there, and everywhere, you've almost got to be single. That's pretty tough, of course, and not many of them are, but um, I've always thought it must be really hard on the, the wife or the husband left at home, whichever it is. It's a very different world out there on tour. Um, all sorts of things happen, and if you're left at home, you'll be just constantly wondering, what the hell are they getting up to? But what advice would you give to young musicians starting out now? Well, practice, practice, practice is, of course, a fundamental thing. Get as good as you possibly can at the craft you have chosen and the instrument or whatever it is that that you've chosen. And then it just kind of depends what, what your ambition is. Probably concentrate on the music that you love, that you would want to play, and if other people like it and you end up being successful with it, that's fantastic, but don't necessarily count on that being the case, but just play what you love to play. That, that of course, that implies that you're probably going to need a day job. You probably, you know, you, you, if you're lucky, you, you, may, you may get really good at it. Um, you may get paid for it. Back in the 70s, 80s, there were so many magazines about music. Yes. And... I mean, even Rolling Stone is only partly about music these days, isn't it? I mean, New Musical Express, is that even still around? I'm not sure, yeah. No, Cream Magazine. Well, that's that's true. I think maybe it was easier then. Um, I mean, even in those days, the Herald had a music column. That's right. In the 1970s, the music industry was bigger than all other entertainment industries combined, which is quite amazing, really. I don't necessarily know these days how you would make that splash, how you would promote yourself in in that way. The ways of doing it are probably different, and the difficulty in doing it is probably much more difficult because I guess, you know, we're talking about social media, you're talking about trying to cut through there and there's plenty of competition there. It's a global thing, I guess. Back in the back in the seventies, you'd, you'd it's a it was a local thing. You'd you'd sort of get well known locally, and that would get you a bit better known on a slightly larger scale. And I mean, I was reading through all this stuff about Peking Man, and mm. it just sort of brings back how different it was. Yeah. You didn't have to sort of do a series of Instagram posts at the beginning and end of every gig. No. That that's right. Your fo- your following wouldn't be through Instagram and and um, other social media. I was about to say Facebook, but I'm not sure that that's true of the younguns anymore. Uh, the idea was to get a record contract and to get radio airplay. Now those are still kind of big things. I'm not so sure about the record contract. Uh, it's certainly not the radio. No, you know that's the these days the the main way I can see that you'd make money is through gigs for a lot of bands. And I think that will always that will always be a thing. Live music always has a certain magic of its own. There'll always be a place for bands who can really deliver in that sort of live environment. But whether you make a truckload of money from that or 
or what have you. Don't know. See, the the other thing that has changed is your area of specialisation, though, drumming. I mean, yes. because you must have had a, a bit of a shiver when those first drum machines came out. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. And and um, even on the, the albums that we did, that's not all me. <laughs> There's a couple of tracks that are drum machines. I, I can see the sense of it. It, it. It's an easy thing to program, and it's easy to make those sounds through a machine, you know. So I can see why producers reach for that. Rather than getting someone back into a that, studio that, that's with a right. mountain of gear. That can be so much better, but not necessarily, you know. Using the drum machine, you get a more guaranteed result. But I must say one of the most disappointing things was reading about um, my favourite band, Steely Dan, and one of my favourite songs of theirs, a, a thing called Gaucho, and it's got a, an amazing drum track on it. this interview where they said they couldn't find a drummer that could play what they wanted so the whole thing is a drum machine in fact they through that they because that was a, that was about 1978 something like that they became pioneers of the drum machine <laughs> and uh, using them on on all of their albums so that was very annoying <laughs> i still like them though. what did happen to those original members of the band um well pat Ehrlich became or is a radio DJ and was still doing his own music. He formed a band called the Pat Ehrlich Band in Auckland. Lives on Waiheke Island, just off, off Auckland. My brother, who was the, the band manager, he started at least a, a secondhand CD shop and secondhand record shop, and that all eventually sort of died. Um, and he actually now works for Mangere City Council, um, looking after one of the shopping centres there. Sort of. A... Tim Calder, um, he kept playing bass around various bands around Auckland. Neville Hall decided to concentrate on symphony orchestras and, and orchestral music and um, he now lives in Serbia and is quite well known in the European sort of music world for his symphonies and um, uh, Jay Folks he played percussion and drums with various different bands around Auckland dance exponents for a little while not their mainstay drummer but he sort of filled in for them he very sadly just passed away recently from COVID he was unfortunately heavily addicted to methamphetamine. Had to go to hospital with COVID and two days later checked himself out, we suspect, because he, he needed to get back to his stash, mm. uh, but was just found dead one day in, in his bedroom. So that was all very sad. That was just a couple of months ago. Uh, Margaret Ehrlich made a bit of a name for herself here in Australia, did quite well in Britain for a little bit, is still quite well known, I suppose you'd say, had, had certainly had the most glittering music career of all of us. She has a couple of kids, lives with her husband in um, the Southern Highlands, doesn't do a lot of gigs these days. But this is the odd thing with music. I mean, uh, even at Margaret's level, she would have made a fair chunk of money, you know, and probably enough to, to live on without needing to work for the rest of her life sort of thing. But that's a pretty rare story, you know, oddly enough. All the musicians, sort of all the world famous people that we know of, um, they're, you know, they're probably rich. And some of the um, the really famous ones like Mick Jagger, you know, meant to be worth 200 million, 250 million, something like this. So 
there's those sorts of levels, but they're they're very you know very few and far between. There's plenty of well-known musicians. Neil Young was one, you know, is um, well-known and poverty-stricken. I don't know if he's still poverty-stricken, but yeah, Willie Nelson is another one. Willie Nelson, yeah, that's that's right, that's another one. The Who were really well-known in Britain, but never had any money. It was only when they went to the US and and started to get some hits over there that they ever got ahead financially, and that was after years of being number one in in Britain. You know, so it's it's a tough industry to if 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 you're in it for the money, you know. Back to what what would you say to a younger musician? You you've got to be in it for the love of what you're doing. If you're thinking, I'll just do this as a money making exercise. Some people do that and get away with it, but that that's pretty hard. Then you'd have to actually be quite lucky. You might think you're clever, but you're actually just really being quite lucky. You've you've just sort of caught, the, the the audience has cottoned onto you for some reason or other. You haven't played in bands since? No, haven't played in bands, haven't played a gig since, uh, just lately. I've got the drums out of storage and set them up again and starting to bash away and have a bit of a practice. Um, So, you know, you never know. John had a successful career in tech and now enjoys semi-retirement in the Blue Mountains. Produced and mixed by Neil Ashworth on Goringai Country. The intro music is I'll Be Free by Papalips from the album High Time Now. Check out the website fishwishing.com.au for all the other details, including a track list. <laughs>